0: Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they can be passionate about science outreach at any level from individual to population level, and that they can definitely think as systems engineers even when reading books or parenting, or that they take home more than the socially appropriate amount of lentils from the free buffet, just like a stereotypical graduate student. Maybe that one's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, if you're enjoying this podcast, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, which, with the magic of algorithms, helps others find the podcast. We have five five five-star reviews right now, and I didn't even leave one. Let's see if we can boost that. A link to review is in the show notes. Today's episode has two guests and two interviewers. We are collaborating with Field Day Lab, a group on the University of Wisconsin-Madison's campus that turns research into video games to teach kids and adults like me, All sorts of subjects including investigative journalism, mathematical modeling, and even agricultural waste runoff in a fun, entertaining way. The conversation today will feature Victor Zavala, who is a systems engineer professor at UW-Madison, and Olivia Dockle, who is a high school teacher at Merrill High School in Merrill, Wisconsin. Both Olivia and Victor worked with Field Day Lab to create the game Lakeland, which I absolutely fell in love with. I built a little city, kept my villagers happy, and provided them food from my farms while aiming to minimize the impact of agricultural runoff into the city's water. The link to the game is in the show notes, so you can build your little city too. The episode today will be a mix of me interviewing Victor in the beginning and end, and Olivia interviewing Victor from a teacher's perspective in the middle. I'm thrilled to bring you the conversation, so let's get to it with Victor Zavala and Olivia Dackel. So, hi, Victor and Olivia. Thank you for joining me on Deeper Than Data. Victor, how are you doing? Good. Thank you. And Olivia, how are you?
1: I am outstanding. Thanks.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Well, I am very excited to have you both here. Uh, This is a little different than the podcast that we've done in the past, um, where we will have a guest interacting with our other guests to ask some questions. Super exciting. Uh, So for the listeners, Victor will be our main interviewee, and then Olivia will hop on a little bit later. But to introduce both of us, uh, both of our guests, we'll just go around the horn a little bit. So, Olivia, would you mind introducing yourself and also the pronouns you like to use?
1: My name is Olivia Dackel. I use uh, she and her. And I am a computer science business and science teacher from Merrill High School in Merrill, Wisconsin.
0: All right. Um, It's going to be hard for me not to ask you questions, (laughs) but I will try. And then, Victor, could you say your full name and the pronouns that you use, please?
2: Yeah, my name is Victor Savala. So I go by pronouns he, him. So I'm a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
0: Great. And as, if you were going to bump into somebody on the street today, what might you look like?
2: So um, I just look like a casual guy. A lot of people confuse me with a grad student. but yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Nice and young looking. Yeah, I saw that you were, I believe, just a few months ago, uh, promoted to full professor. And I could have sworn, like, you were just two years older than me. Maybe you are. I'm 30. <laughs> um, but that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that you, you're a professor on UW's campus. So if you're going to talk to your friends and family about your research, what might you say?
2: Yeah, so we work on a research area that is called systems engineering, where the idea is that we're trying to develop techniques to analyze very complex systems. So things that might arise, for example, in supply chains, distribution, logistics, and also sustainability. So we're trying to understand um, how industry uh, can create environmental impacts that are broad, and also try to understand how those we can mitigate those impacts through better policy and also better technologies.
0: And then one thing I found that was really interesting in some of your talks that I was looking up too is that you often incorporate kind of an economic side uh, for efficiencies, so not only like the systems engineering and also the monetary one, which is fascinating. And I will definitely ask you more questions about that, but I always like to go back into people's childhood with the first question, my favorite question, who was your first crush?
2: My first crush? Oh my goodness. So this was probably, I'm going to say around when I was in, um, probably eight years to nine years old. So I had a a crush on a little girl in, uh, in, in elementary school, so there's no reason why. It just happened organically. <laughs> she looked like a very interesting person.
0: <laughs> Already after personality. Your, your work now is is very complex. Like that's exa- exactly what you're working on is complex problems. As a kid, did you feel like you had any inkling of like systems thinking? Were you thinking like wh- how this system is working? How might food systems or where does the recycling go? Anything like that? Uh,
2: not really the back in the day when I was little I think what I had definitely was a lot of curiosity for many different areas so I think slowly I started to like connect the dots which is really what a systems engineer does is like trying to connect dots where you think there are no dots and uh, where there are no connections and um, so I think that that's really where everything started just trying to um, understand like uh, uh, yeah like a two very different parts of my education, for example, connected. How do I apply math to uh, science or trying to apply uh, scientific principles to also guide my my math? So I think that was one of the pretty early onsets of of trying to uh, uh, connect co- with what I do now.
0: Yeah, and I feel like your curiosity has, I would imagine, only blossomed more since you can now get paid for your curiosity too yeah did that curiosity keep going through middle school high school were you starting to get attracted to like certain subjects or was it still very broad
2: uh yeah no i think that i was always very broad i was uh very interested in in all aspects of my education in history ethics uh etymology like where do words come from right like uh, i was very passionate about that up to this day, I'm, I'm very passionate about that topic. And that that's really what that brought kind of a in, set of interest really was, I think, what defined a lot of my uh, education and who I am right now. And, and as I said, like just connecting dots of, uh, oh, it turns out that this Greek word for this scientific word, right, comes from this origin. Like I always love to establish those connections. Yeah. Right?
0: I can only imagine what your friend group was like within like middle school and high school, too, because it seems like seems to me like you're asking the big questions in life and uh, other high schoolers may not be on the exact same level. So who was Victor in high school?
2: So I was what I will dis- define as multidimensional. My my friends were actually people that were not actually inclined towards academics that much. So they were actually people that like music. There are people that like sports. So, so yeah, I kind of like had a very diverse group of friends.
0: Would probably just help feed the curiosity more. And you had to be on your toes to have like those conversations. When you went to university, um, it was in Mexico City. Did you grow up in Mexico City as well?
2: No. So I was, uh, my, my dad worked for a chemical company. So, um, so he's an accountant, but worked for the chemical industry. So we, I was born in a, a small town in the south of Mexico that is well known for the chemical industry. So there's multiple companies there. And then we move around Mexico uh, at different locations where the company had facilities. And then eventually we converged to a place close to Mexico City, which is where where I went to high school and then to college.
0: Okay, gotcha. So by the time that you were in college, kind of used to the big city, um, probably not too hard of a transition from going to the small town to something larger.
2: Yeah, it was a slow transition, so definitely it was a little bit of a cultural shock because uh, the the towns or the little cities where I was raised, it was definitely like a very small scale, very tight communities, and then going to the big city was a big shift. But also it was a positive experience because all of a sudden I was exposed to to things that were not available in the more, in the smaller places, right? So Mexico City is an incredible city, a lot of museums, a lot of cultural experiences. A lot of great universities so yeah it was uh, eye-opening as well
0: and who was victor in college did that curiosity just keep going forward did you start to get maybe attracted to engineering a bit more
2: yeah so definitely i i went to college knowing that i wanted to be a chemical engineer so it was very clear to me uh this came because my dad worked for the chemical industry all his friends were chemical engineers so they were always talking about this all the time so i kind of like naturally got inclined into that But also at some point in college, I was very attracted to computation. Uh, That's when using computers as a way to solve problems. So that's uh, probably somewhere in sophomore year when I started developing that passion. And um, and yeah, and yeah, I was still uh, super curious, had a very broad set of interests, a lot into music. So I love heavy metal. I love rock music. So I, I, yeah, things like that. So I was very inclined to a lot of interesting things.
0: Did you start coding, I guess, also? in maybe, maybe high school, but most likely in, in college?
2: Yeah, so for me, it was a little bit of a late bloomer, I'm going to say. So nowadays you hear of kids getting into coding early on in high school. For me, it happened a little bit later, so probably in sophomore. And I think the interesting part of the story is that it came through me through a particular course that it was not about programming. So it was more about the, the teacher telling us, you know, you need to solve this specific problem in chemical engineering, and you need to figure out how to do it. And uh, and that was the first experience where I say, oh, I can use computers to actually solve this problem that otherwise will be very hard to solve. Um, and so that's when I started developing that passion for programming. But it kind of happened a little late. So probably sophomore to junior
0: year. Were you building like your own custom codes to figure out the world? I, I remember. So like when I was starting to get into codings, and I use code more for statistics, but it was like, now I can just do everything computationally. And if I can design something to just automatically import data sets, then, oh boy, (laughs) the whole world is my oyster.
2: Yeah, no, in my case, it was something very specific, which is a type of calculation that chemical engineers do all the time. So when you have a mixture that can separate into a gas in a liquid, uh, this mixture of different components will reach something that we call equilibrium. So at some point, some components go into the gas phase, some components stay in the liquid phase, and you need to figure out which ones and at what concentration. So it's a very difficult calculation that involves a lot of complex mathematical equations. So my professor asked us to code that in a, in a calculator that we had at the time, not even a laptop, right? It was like a, like a scientific calculator. So that was the first piece of code, but, but that was kind of the catapult. It was like, oh my God, I can do this very complex calculation in my in my calculator, right? So now in mind what I can do with my laptop, right? And that's kind of the, the thought process that I follow.
0: Yeah, and I can see you, like, right now, you are glowing about like, the thoughts of the, <laughs> the code. So, yeah, I can see that you're, you know, passionate about that. Did you take any time in between uh, your undergrad career and graduate?
2: Um, so in Mexico, it was interesting because... You graduate in December, back in the day. So now things are shifting, but my, my engineering education ended in December. So what that means is that, yeah, I was admitted to the PhD program in Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, but I you, I was not gonna start until August. So, so I had a little period of, of time available to kind of dig deeper into research. I also served a little bit as a TA in the undergrad program in my university. That kind of gave me also some exposure into teaching and also mentoring students. Um, so yeah, I took a little break in between there.
0: Yeah, was that the time that your desire to do more outreach started. Because I, I feel like you've got you know have got very interesting research. It's very hard to communicate because I've watched some of your videos. Like a lot of the times, your your quote unquote eye candy that you've mentioned as a series of equations for some people, that's totally eye candy <laughs> for some people, maybe a little bit more like me, um, would be intimidated. Um, so I imagine like that's a, that's a huge challenge to tackle. And maybe you started feeling like that is something I need to talk about a little bit more with people, but correct me if I'm sure.
2: Wrong. Yeah. So my, my interest in outreach happened because of two things. So my, my family actually comes from very humble uh, uh, background. So, so so not financially very stable, let's put it that way, but my dad was very successful in uh, going up the socioeconomic ladder to the point that we were financially great. Uh, but as a result of that, I always had kind of a passion for helping people jump off that ladder, right? So and helping people come out of those uh, social strata. But um, at the same time, uh, my university is a Jesuit university. So it's one of those uh, schools that is part of this Jesuit college and university network. So think about in the US, Loyola University will be a good example, Georgetown, Gonzaga. Those are uh, schools that have a Jesuit kind of uh, uh, principles guiding the education. And the Jesuits are all about social justice and they're all about trying to help communities with any aspect of your education that you have, even if it's chemical engineering or something very technical, mathematics, they try to figure out how to connect with the community and how to help the, to, to bring social justice. Right. And this is, I think that it was something that I became very passionate about when I was in undergrad.
0: I feel like that, so not to just like skip over your grad school, because I'm sure that's formative for you, but I feel like that philosophy translates really well to the Wisconsin idea of getting the science, whatever knowledge we have out into the field. Once you started your uh, tenure-track position at UW-Madison, did you have outreach as one of your core principles that you're going to do with your lab, or was it something that kind of worked out spontaneously?
2: Yeah, so I think the, my, my passion has always been to try to solve problems of interest to society. So I think that when I came to Wisconsin, I immediately was very attracted to say, well, like Wisconsin has a very prominent agricultural industry, so let's try to identify interesting problems that can help the state. Right. So I'm, I'm always trying to find problems that connect with the community that, that either local or or a national scale. So I think that that's where my curiosity came. And and you are exactly right. The the Wisconsin idea is something very ingrained also in the way that, that we do things here. And I think that's also something that attracted me to to a state university like Wisconsin.
0: That's one of the things that made, has made me want to also stay around here. Um, And I feel like in finding guests for this podcast, it's been Relatively easy, because I think people realize, yeah, it's not great to hoard data or results. Um, It's for everyone in the world. So thanks for being part of that team and solution, Victor. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I think you and I might resonate on the curiosity and me using my stats is in a way for epidemiology. So I feel like I can use kind of the same design for studies, uh, the same thought process analytics to jump from subject to subject. When you were starting your lab and now, I'm curious, how do you parse apart your different projects to keep them all straight as well? Because you're, you're in the agriculture, uh, kind of wind energy, renewable energy sectors um, and others, which I'm blanking on right now. But it's fun, but probably a lot to like wrap your head around.
2: Yeah. So, so I can just quickly tell you, yeah, we're working on, on sustainability related to plastic recycling, agriculture. We have projects on power grid markets. We have uh, projects on data science and machine learning. So chemical in, more traditional chemical engineering processes uh, and automation. So I think what the way I'd like to reconcile all of this is that, I always tell my students that they're very core, basic mathematical principles that if you master those, they can be broadly applicable to everything you do. Statistics is a great example. So once you know how to think in terms of statistical terms, then you open a broad set of potential uh, applications, right? That you can think about not only epidemiology, but also data science and other types of applications. Right. So. um, So, yeah, I think that. Even if we have many different applications, uh, we're also always kind of starting from the basic mathematical principles and the students are trained into um, understanding those basic principles.
0: Well, speaking of students outreach and agriculture, you have been working um, on waste management in agriculture Um I watched your talk last night when you're trying to put this into relatable terms that for every gallon of ice cream that someone consumes, there's four gallons of manure produced, which um, made me pause and think. Um, <laughs> I'm not a huge ice cream fan, but I'm sure you know all the cheese that I'm eating <laughs> is also producing <laughs> lots of manure as well. Um, And I think not only is this an interesting topic, but you have partnered with Field Day Lab to turn this into a video game. So I'm curious to start this conversation and then we'll invite Olivia back in. What made you want to do a video game for your outreach?
2: Yeah, so I think uh, I I, uh, through my original list, I've always been trying to find interesting ways to reach out and to do outreach. And at some point, uh, someone recommended that I chat with the uh, field they love uh, to look into how they use video games to do outreach. And I immediately struck me as a very effective way of, and also very synergistic with the way that I do computation and systems. Because at the end of the day, many of the models that we develop could be translatable directly into a video game. Right. So the, the there's some hidden mathematics and physics behind the video games that are not that could be naturally plugged in. So it, it struck me like a very effective way of reaching out to broad set of people, but also very synergistic with the type of research that I do.
0: Right. And so the video game that was produced in conjunction with you, I think, in Teachers and Field Day Lab is a game called Lakeland, where it's similar to, I feel like, a tycoon or Sims game where you're managing a city, you're trying to bring people in, They are happy playing in the water, but they need to eat and have an economy to build more houses. And to do so, they need to sell corn and sometimes milk if you choose to go that route, which also makes waste because you have to make sure the corn is okay That can produce food and also having the dairies can produce extra manure. I think both you and I, as you were chatting in the very beginning before recording, got sucked into this um, and playing a lot more hours than we probably needed to. But I think that's that's one of the amazing tools about this um, as video games for outreach. And like you're saying, there's hidden mathematics. I'm getting to understand the system without having to look at those equations that might be intimidating. So then, Olivia, I'm going to hand this over to you. And I'm curious, like, how your students, if they've played this game, might be interacting with it and also allow you to ask any questions that you might have for Victor.
1: Well, I was with uh, the initial cohort of teachers that were uh, in the development or the design uh, of Victor's game with Field Lab. Um, So I was able to bring it into my computer science classes so that students who have a very limited understanding of game design and programming could understand more complex systems like how uh, various interact, uh, sorry, iterations occur and why um, there's a growth or change in games. So, um, Victor, do you remember all the way back to the first Uh, rendition they had uh, and how pixelated the characters were and the little swimmer (laughs) Um, eventually there's a my my students still uh, are very excited when they see the little swimmer with a little floaty around them Um, that's probably one of the favorite parts of the games but that wasn't there in the beginning so um, they were there all along to see these different iterations um, and they learned the game design and the mechanics behind it are much more complex Um, I use it with my biology students because we were using some very outdated modeling techniques for understanding runoff. Um, and being in winter in northern Wisconsin, it was very difficult for them to conceptualize this big picture of how, uh, and again, and Victor, you get this dot in your head, um, of how agriculture, of how business, of how water quality affect even uh, the local economy, where we're a tourist economy where we live. Um, using that simulation, they're able to understand the big picture. So for for once, rather than just looking at a textbook and looking at some data, they were, uh, or a worksheet, they were able to play around with the variables and produce different outcomes. Um, Very powerful. And when you look at our NGSS standards for uh, science, we are really striving for students to understand how modeling occurs. And we just don't get that at that sophomore or at the freshman level. So it was a fantastic tool to use.
0: So I would also imagine when you're having the first conversation between teachers, field day lab, you, Victor, there's a difference in expertise between all of you and also who for your audiences. Students might just be learning about modeling or agricultural waste for the first time. Teachers might have some idea of it, but not at the complex level that you have, Victor, in the actual modeling so how did that conversation start? Yeah, so
2: I think the, the field they love have very effective ways of, um, of connecting the, the scientists, in this case, uh, me, with, with the teachers. So they, they have these uh, sessions where precisely I give a, a, a talk at a good enough level, I feel, to, to try to start presenting some of these concepts. But then the field they love, a group of very smart people that help you translate those concepts into something tangible that will be used as the educational tool and establish that communication with the with the teachers. So I think that they serve as a good middle ground to try to establish the, those connections and they have been very effective at doing it.
0: Yeah. And how Olivia, how is your perspective on that whole game building?
1: Working with Field Day has absolutely been amazing. As Victor said, they have uh, a really solid model of efficient communication between teachers and uh, programmers and data scientists and designers. Uh, I was so impressed with how well organized and how well this model works. Um, And when you get teachers together in a room, we come up with all of the crazy ideas um, that necessarily don't meet uh, program requirements of how to keep kids engaged. And we're always really worried about time and how does this fit within learning objectives um, and standards. And field day does, again, a wonderful job of saying it'll be okay. We'll keep those in mind. We'll circle back around a few different meetings from now and we'll make sure that all of the standards or all of the needs of your students are met. Again, this is our overall picture. This is our overall goal. And we'll get there. Fantastic people to work with.
0: And I've, I think I've gone through the entire library of their games at this point, and which was fun to do uh, for work, just playing video <laughs> games. So, not only are they like teaching actual good concepts um, that are aligned with core curriculum, they're enjoyable games to play. Like I mentioned, like I played too much <laughs> on these games <laughs> as an adult, um, so that's a good sign.
1: Right, and even after years after I introduced this game in my classroom, I still have students play it. Uh, for fun. And I'll see them playing it in my class and they'll say, hey, whatever happened to that game that we played in bio? Um, And they'll break it out and they'll show their students. And if you have a student show another student, Victor, you have complete success. So congratulations on that. They love it.
2: I'm very happy to hear. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Who would you like to personally give a shout out to for an educator who inspired you and your passion for computer science?
2: Yeah. So I think uh, in, in my case, it was my undergrad instructor that that was the one that gave us that assignment uh, to do programming. So I think the, the key message there is that from my perspective is that sometimes kids will get into programming, not necessarily for the sake of programming, but it's more with the end goal in mind. And that's what happened with me. Sometimes we think that the student will take a programming course and all of a sudden develop that passion out of that programming course. In my case, it did not happen that way. It was more that there's this very specific application that it was a, a kind of meet the end, right, the end goal. So I think that, that that was kind of a shout out to my undergrad instructor that that got me into this.
1: And as you had the opportunity to look at the behind the scenes data for Lakeland, what surprised you about how students were using it or what data did you see that um, maybe wasn't expected on student usage or teacher usage?
2: Yeah, it, it, yeah that's a great question. I think. In, in systems engineering in the way that we solve these problems we have well-established techniques for how do we solve these types of problems and uh, and what you find out is that that kids get creative and they they develop different strategies to to solve it and sometimes those strategies are completely not not obvious and that's part of the discovery process for me just understanding that People have very different uh, thought processes and different ways of solving these problems. And there's a wide range of techniques that they follow; it's not just one, right?
1: <laughs> Was there one in particular that a student attempted to do that um, really surprised you, or that you could give an example of?
2: Yeah. So, for example, the I think the typical thing is is the what I what I call the the risk averse against the risk taker. So you see. The typically, kids, right, that are trying to make money quickly, right, and then they pack off, right. That's a response of the of the risk uh, the risk taking. Some of them are more careful, right. They take a more staggered approach, and that's exactly the type of uh, way that we solve problems in real life and the way that we invest, even, right. So I think that yeah. So that's that's kind of the the, the strategy that I always struck me right away. You can detect the personalities right away.
1: Yeah. I wish you could have seen it from our classroom side um, because I I got to see those personalities and there's always the one kid that tries to kill everybody off right away. Um, And there's the other student that tries to make as much money as possible and find uh, a hack to get through uh, to be the winner. And then the ones that just kind of play around and and see what their friends are doing. So I know those personalities and I've seen them. (laughs) I appreciate that. I guess, Victor, which one are you?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm the risk taker. So I'm the one that I just go try to make the money and then try to correct after the fact. <laughs> Probably not the best way to go. But
1: <laughs> What's one piece of advice that you would want every future computer science student at the high school level or even at the undergrad level to know? What's one piece of advice that you have for them career wise or education wise?
2: Yeah, I think the number one advice is that there are many different ways to success. Uh, many different pathways to success sometimes they are not linear so we tend to think that you need to follow one trajectory to get into what you are it absolutely is not like that so it's it's sometimes random sometimes through circles right so there's a interesting ways of 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 achieving success so there's no unique way of of getting where you want to be and specifically related to computer science there's no unique way of doing computer science we tend to think that the computer scientist is the prototypical guy that is just coding, right? Uh, it's not necessarily the case. So we have a lot of people that are in the industry or they are in the EPA or they are in uh, just general federal government that are using programming as a way to solve societal problems, right? And and, and you might not think that they're computer scientists, but they, but they are, right? And uh, so, yeah, I think that there are many different ways in how computing manifests um, in, in, the, in the real world. But I'm also very... Um, interested in promoting more diversity in computing. So one of the things that you see is that f- female students, right, they don't get into this, minority students, they don't get as much into computing. That has been a prevailing problem in computer science. And I feel it is because the way we teach computing. I think it is because we teach it in a way that is too technical. That is not necessarily the most attractive way to to, to bring uh, all different types of communities into, into computation. And I do feel that these mechanisms like teaching it through sustainability or teaching it through some topic that might be more of, of interest to other communities like social justice, things like that, that could be a way to, to bring also communities that are underrepresented to compute into computing
1: yeah Victor, you're right so I've been teaching computer science for about 20 years now Um, and when we first started teaching it was you're gonna learn how to use visual basic net or C++ or C sharp and it was very siloed in the approach of we're gonna teach you the language versus now um, I've seen this transition in education to teach as you said from a systematic approach of let's solve problems and every project we have starts out with what problem would you like to solve even at the most basic level. What's one thing you would like computer science or science teachers to know? What's one piece of advice that you would give them being a systems analyst that we should teach our students or pass on to them or wish that we understood better?
2: Yeah, I will say that the systems thinking for sure. I feel that at least in my back in the day when I was a high school student, I feel that the the curriculum was a little fragmented, like you will learn this and that, uh, different, different topics, but it was hard to see how they actually connect. And I feel that there were some missed great opportunities there, right? Like, how do we integrate all these topics, right? In a way that helps us solve problems. So I will say that uh, systems thinking is something that we should keep pursuing because the problems that we're facing in society right now require that systems thinking, right? So we need to understand how a pandemic is going to affect the supply chains. We need to understand how a particular federal policy could affect the pandemic. All these all these types of dimensions, right? It's important for students to start appreciating how everything connects and, and just develop that way of connecting the
1: dots, right? And that's where I feel Lakeland was such a powerful game. Um, and as a teacher who Teaches uh, multiple disciplines. It was the first simulation, the first game that I could use in my business classroom to help students understand natural resource use and sustainable thinking, uh, and have it in my science classroom so that students understood the processes behind, again, uh, nutrification. Like, and at the same time for computer science, this was the trifecta. This was the perfect game that I could ever (laughs) introduce in my classroom that I could hit all of my classes at once. So again, thank you. It was it's absolutely an amazing creation.
2: Yeah, thank you, Olivia. That means a lot to me. (laughs)
1: Thanks.
0: Olivia, how did you feel when you saw kids play the game and actually enjoy it?
1: Excited and proud. Uh, it's just it was so neat. So I'm a UW-Madison graduate as well. Um, so it was very exciting for me to be able to work uh, with other alumni um, and at the school to be able to bring something to my students in northern rural Wisconsin. Um, it, it was neat. And it was neat for them to be able to, again, for the programming students to see behind the scenes. That's not something that we can normally do at our level. And then one last personal question for Victor. Uh, what's on your coding playlist for music?
2: Oh, my goodness. So, oh, yeah. So I'm a big fan of this heavy metal band called Tool. So so I'm a very big fan of heavy metal, and that's always playing constantly. So, uh, so yeah, I'm a very passionate about that type of music. <laughs>
1: And uh, when you're debugging, do you use rubber duck debugging or what's your process? Oh, debugging.
2: So that that's great. So I think it's part of the systems thinking that I like to think about my code as an interconnection of many different pieces. And I try to understand those interconnections and I isolate effects, right? So, so that I can pinpoint and zoom in into where the problem might be. So I use uh, that type of thinking in, in debugging.
1: Ben, do you have programming background? I'm gonna interview you now. <laughs>
0: sure. Um, yeah. Why yeah. Not? I I took a a programming for SAS class back in maybe 2014, I think, and just naturally started to really enjoy it. You know, I haven't expanded much beyond programming languages in stats packages. So I've done SAS, SPSS, a bit of R. Um, And it's fun. And I feel like you probably both relate to this, like the small victories in in the coding can be so like monumental. And working in my code, I just remember there was one time, like I just kept messing it up over and over and over and I couldn't figure it out. And I was working in my lab at the time. We had a service person fixing like one of our x-ray machines in the lab. And I figured it out. So I threw my arms up in the air And it was victorious and he walked in and he just mirrored it and he was like, oh, you must have done something really big. It's like I just found like the wrong semicolon. (laughs) But, you know, after an hour and a half, that felt great. Yeah. So kind of applied accidental background. But I I do. I do enjoy it.
1: And then one last question uh, for Victor. So. What's next, Victor? Are you, If you could come up with uh, another systematic game for students in education, regardless of the discipline, what would you like to do? You know, your dream your dream program, your dream game, what would it be? Oh,
2: yeah, that's a great question. We're about, we're about to get started with Field Day Lab. Actually, tomorrow we have our kickoff meeting to start a new project. And what I want to do is now I start navigating this interface between video games and simulators. So in engineering education, we use simulators as a way to make decisions, right? So policymakers, engineers will use these computer simulators to try to understand how their decisions influence a particular system, right? But sometimes I feel that those simulators are very technical, not too exciting, and at some point it becomes very monotonous type of work, right? So what I'm trying to do is try to learn from Field Day Lab, like how do they think about uh, putting a little bit more excitement, try to make these simulators feel like a video game, and trying to come up with something that potentially feels more like a flight simulator, right? So it's like... You think about I'm, I'm similar in flight, but at the same time, I'm learning how to drive, how to like uh, fly a plane, right? So I think that we want to do something similar that potentially policymakers can use, high, high school students can use, and engineers can use to make decisions. And it will be centered still around the dairy industry, like how uh, strategic decisions on how do we place technologies, how do we change agricultural practices. How do we uh, change our ecosystems to make sure that we protect the lakes and try to understand and help navigate the complexity of that? So that's the next project. And that's my dream. I want to figure out a way to help com- people really solve these complex problems. I think th- these problems are, are difficult and, and we need more exciting way, more engaging ways of, of dealing with them. So that's the next thing. So ask me in two years. Let's see how it goes.
0: <laughs> Olivia, thanks for being on here. It was, it was fun to chat and get your perspective. Thank you, Olivia.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. And again, thank you, Victor, for a great game. And uh, and Ben, thank you for being so kind.
0: (laughs) Thank you. You got it. All right, Victor, me and you. So earlier in the interview, you mentioned COVID and supply chain issues. I think you, in your past, when I was looking at your your CV resume, I did see that you've done some supply chain analysis and systems engineering. Are you like chomping at the bit right now to dive into it? Um, or is there some like tug and pull to resist diving in? Or maybe you're doing some right now.
2: Yeah. So supply chain research is one of the core kind of uh, pieces of research that we're doing, areas of research. Uh, so supply chains is an effective way of modeling these interconnections between different stakeholders that are involving different types of applications. So, for example, in the agricultural industry, you need to understand that the, the dairy farms are connected with the agricultural land because they're trying to feed the cows, right? So there are these types of interconnections and they're exchanging products, right? At the same time, you have the environment that enters in here and that is affected. So you can also think about how the environment is affected by the supply chain. So you think about also the interaction of the dairy farms with other Uh, manufacturing facilities to produce cheese through milk. right? So you try to capture all those interactions through supply chains. And those supply chain models are not very different to the ones that Amazon would use, for example, to distribute products to different locations. They're very similar mathematically. And it goes back to that idea that the the core principles of mathematics are very similar. So so we developed those types of models to uh, to tackle different types of applications. The chemical industry also solves these problems uh, quite routinely.
0: And you're also probably trying, I would i would imagine, maximizing for time or efficiency.
2: Yeah, well, I think wh- one of the key aspects of these models is to try to understand the incentives that people have to do transactions or to mitigate environmental impacts. Right. So I think that that's one of the key elements of these types of models um, uh, in these types of. Um, in the economies in markets that we have available, people follow typically profit maximizing um, uh, uh behavior, right? So they're trying to maximize their own profit, but they have realized that from time to time, it helps them to coordinate. And coordination is a key concept that we typically don't think about in in markets and in economics, but actually that's how the electricity power grid operates. So in the power grid, we actually cooperate between consumers and, and suppliers to make sure that we're not doing crazy stuff and and that we will destabilize the grid, right? So we want to have some sort of synergy. So there's a coordination agent that is actually driving those transactions. So it's someone like kind of just are overseeing that everything is moving accordingly. So unfortunately not in all industrial systems we have that coordination. And one of the things that we're advocating is that unless we bring some level of coordination into these industrial systems, uh, we're going to keep having sustainability problems. We're going to still having environmental impacts problems. And that's precisely what is happening with the dairy industry, that we don't have good mechanisms to understand how decisions that are made in a certain industrial sector can affect the environment and how the government can intervene to to uh, mitigate some of those impacts.
0: Hmm. I would also imagine there's probably some maybe like theories of efficiency or time usage i was listening to um the indicator from npr last night and they were discussing the just-in-time efficiency model that's used a lot in um, automobiles and i think in other um, manufacturing at this point which you might you could model for that efficiency but i would also imagine you have to change your models depending on inputs and outputs and like all models, they're flawed in some sort of way. Yeah. Is there like a a core of like, we're going for this amount of efficiency for like the right model?
2: Yeah, what we're trying to do is that precisely when you're trying to maximize some of these economic metrics like efficiency or responsiveness, uh, like how quickly you respond to certain events, you can introduce... Um, uh, trade-offs in sustainability or social aspects, right? So one good example of that is if you try to maximize ec- economics, sometimes you will get solutions in industry, for example, that tend to centralize facilities into big, big facilities. And that's what has happened with the dairy industry. So there are economic drivers that have uh, been centralizing all these dairy cows into big animal feeding operations, as opposed to have the smaller dairy farms, right? Like are more distributed, right? And that has been an economic driver. So I think if you have the ability to understand uh, how other aspects uh, come into play, sustainability and all of that, uh, then you can start um, um, just understanding so those interconnections. Now, some of the models that we develop, absolutely, is not; they're not expected to be a true representation of how the actual markets behave, but they tend to give you insight on the trade-offs, like what will happen if the economy moves in this direction or in this direction, right? It's just to get some idea what are the fundamental trade-offs and constraints that you might have in the system.
0: So I, I'm curious if you relate to this at all. Uh, a few years ago, I remember I got into this mode of like efficiency in my mind where I was trying to be the most efficient. And I think it became almost paralyzing because it got to the point where I was making breakfast in the morning and I'd usually have like oatmeal with peanut butter and banana. And I would try to figure out what is the most efficient movement of me in the kitchen to slice a banana, add the peanut butter uh, you know, cover in cinnamon and, and can I do all that stuff while things are being heated up? Um, so I'm curious, like your, your thought process is studying all these systems. Like how, how has it affected your life at all? Your, your thinking and your journey throughout life?
2: Yeah. So that's fascinating. You mentioned that because I do exactly the same. <laughs> I always, I operate, I operate my life as an optimization problem. So I'm always trying to figure out what's the best way to either minimize time or maximize the amount of things that I can do in a certain amount of time, that is something in systems engineering is called a scheduling problem. So, we we have very well-established models on how do you optimize the scheduling of different tasks in parallel or in series to try to maximize throughput, right? Like how many activities you can get done or to minimize time, right? So, um, it turns out that humans naturally do that in their heads, right? And sometimes we don't we have very effective ways of doing it. And probably through your intuition, right? You're already solving those problems in your head, but we don't even know, right? Uh, but we're very alert of the constraints. We're very alert of the objectives and what are the trade-offs. But that, it has influenced my life tremendously. I think about everything in my life as a systems problem, as an optimization problem, basically.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I, my, my follow-up was like, has that gotten you into trouble at some points? Because I imagine like, in relationships, when people are like, no, this is like a... Because then it changes like your value of or something that is valuable might be different to someone else's value. And you're like, no, this is the most efficient way. It was like, no, this is I don't see it that way at all. Absolutely. And, and I think I've
2: gotten into trouble in the sense that, um, that my objective has always been to do more in the same amount of time. And sometimes I forget that I have a minimum energy. I have an energy budget. Right. I don't I cannot do everything and sometimes end up in situations where I'm super tired, where I have uh, driven my energy to the ground and it's not a sustainable way of living. Right. So I always try to push too much. Right. Uh, So, yeah. So in that sense, I've gotten into into trouble.
0: Is there anything that you let yourself be completely inefficient on? Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, no. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm,
2: I'm uh, yeah, and maybe my wife will be a better person to answer that question. But yeah, it, it's, I always have that efficiency or objective. And it's very interesting that you ask that, because sometimes I have trouble finding good hobbies, because I'm always thinking about, okay, what is this hobby giving me? Right? Like, what, what is, what is it? And unless I see a perceptible benefit, a perceptible efficiency or productivity benefit. I I don't engage, right? So uh, so for me, for example, my hobby nowadays is running, because I feel that long distance running has helped me uh, become you know, more healthy, more, um, have a more sustainable life, more sustainable energy into the things that I do. So I can see a direct connection, but it's not always the case in other types of activities that I do. So I always have a budget for, I'm going to spend 30 minutes reading this book and that's it. And then move on to the next thing. So, yeah, (laughs) it's a very robotic way of thinking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but it's helpful. I think to some point, I think they can get, um, decision paralysis. I I am the same way. I think my friends have noticed sometimes they've even asked me like, why are you friends with me? Like, it, this is probably not the most efficient use of your time. I'm like, well, no, no. Like I, I do enjoy hanging out with you. I just, you know, talk about all these things that I could be doing. And layered on top of that, I feel like your your choices can be short term game or long term gain, which can lead. I, I feel like sometimes if so, I casually play the guitar. I I started learning that a little bit during the pandemic. Stop doing that. We'll pick it up every once in a while. Short term, that's good. But I do have in the thought, like, if I was using this half an hour that I'm playing the guitar long term cooking, or if I use this for uh, meal prepping right now, I could save all the time later in the week. I can't imagine that is always very helpful (laughs) as a husband. Exactly. (laughs) So going into more open ended questions, uh, since you've been doing a lot of outreach, um, do you have a favorite or one of one of your favorite ways to do outreach?
2: I'm going to say that the most effective way that I have found to do it has been precisely through this video game experience. But at the same time, we also have at the University of Wisconsin diverse set of events. Where, for example, you think about the engineering expo, the design fest, uh, where you actually interact with these kids in person, and like, and, and even if you don't reach the broad audience that you reach with a video game, just seeing the smile in the faces of kids as they are discovering a new concept, that's really life-changing. I mean, just thinking that one of these kids in the future, this could actually be the the instant that 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 might say that that was the moment that I discovered I wanted to be into science. And, you know, recently um, we had a visitor uh, that was considering coming to Wisconsin for grad school. And, and she was telling me, I was born and raised here at the, in Madison and I came to one of those outreach events and I was very little, like uh, 10 years old, let's say. And she said, that was the moment when I came to that event that I said, I, I think I, I want to be a scientist. So I think that's very powerful and it's, um, just interacting with kids is, is, is just um, uh, very rewarding, very, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great way of doing outreach.
0: Yeah, I feel very similarly about the podcast where ideally this can go out and help lots of different people. Um, you know, one of the goals is to just show that everyone is struggling and our intended audience at this point really is graduate students to show like everyone is struggling together and the people who look like they're doing perfectly have their own battles, too. Um, but I've had friends who are also grad students come up to me and say like, you're, you know, the, the podcast got me through the week, which is just so invigorating and something that I hold on to. Yeah. it It's, it's worth a lot. And another thing that we do with the podcast is try to feature all different sorts of scientists from all different backgrounds that we can. do you also have that, those, um, I'm not sure if you've got like diversity, equity, inclusion, justice initiatives within your research and lab as well.
2: Yeah. So. uh, So, yeah, we that's uh, in my department, I'm actually the chair for our diversity and climate uh, and inclusion committee. So. uh, So, yeah, that's something I'm very passionate about, like just trying to identify ways in in which we can um, help bring uh, underrepresented communities into science And also try to identify ways in which those communities can uniquely contribute to science because they bring new and fresh perspectives that sometimes we don't think about. Right. So uh, so I just think about my own personal experience on how I got into science. And it was not a linear path. I was not the uh, I'm going to say the prototypical guy that everyone knew early on that he was going to get a Ph.D. I didn't even know what a Ph.D. was when I was in college, just to put it. Blankly. Right. I didn't even know that you could get a PhD in chemical engineering. Right. So I think that that these unique type of experiences are, are refreshing and help us question the way that we do science. It helps us question the way we communicate with the public. And I think ultimately that's beneficial to to the scientific community.
0: right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think to everyone in all sorts of communities, because um, ideally, you know, with the Wisconsin Idea and um, you're mentioning the connections of different colleges to the Jesuit society. It is taking what we find and spreading those benefits to everyone. Um, and that often means incorporating a lot of different perspectives that may not be right now in sciences. What is something that you're looking forward to? Yeah, so
2: I, I would say that you're solving complex problems. It sounds very simple, but, but I think that we're always pushing the boundary of uh, what what is the um, how do I solve like these societal problems that, that we have sustainability uh, that's for me a big thing that we need to figure out how to do it. How do we properly communicate with the government how do we bring this all these communities together industry policy, like all these different stakeholders that we think that they're not connected, but they are, right? So how do we bring them together into a common framework that they can understand how their decisions impact each other's uh, lives? I think for me, that's really what I'm looking forward, just like keep pushing those boundaries. And and also I'm, you know, in the back of my mind, is always that trying to find these underlying principles of how everything connects. So the world is fully interconnected i mean and and we're constantly discovering these interconnections and that's part of the excitement of science just finding connections where you don't think there might be and that has it's always constantly the constantly the 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 source of uh of, uh, uh, of excitement. For example, when I came to Wisconsin, I had no idea we'll be working in cow manure. Right. And I, when you, the first thing that you hear about cow manure is like, wow, on earth would someone be working on this? Right. It's like, well, it's a very important sustainability problem. And we have been able to identify some really interesting mathematical questions that come motivated by this problem. Right. So I think that, that those are the types of things that I'm always looking forward to finding new, interesting applications to, to kind of mot- develop new math and new computational techniques.
0: Yeah, you. Yeah, not everyone would think if I solve a manure problem, that's also going to help the world's oceans and communities that depend on the oceans. With some of your research, either with you know tackling a manure problem or tackling um, the electrical grid and how renewable energy could be implemented in that, do you feel like... That is your contribution to mitigating climate change.
2: Yes, so I think the, the the way that I'm trying to tackle this problem is trying to identify new and fresh ways to enable communication. Um, I feel that some of the words that we use to communicate environmental impacts are not necessarily the best ones. So uh, you think about things like greenhouse gas emissions. So we keep talking about that, but I feel the general public cannot relate to that, right? So maybe me as a chemical engineer can relate to it, but but people that are in other types of communities might not reflect to that. But for example, water quality is something that people care about, right? And that is very tangible to them. And when they see an algae bloom, they will connect. So I think that I'm trying to find opportunities where people can see this, uh, impacts more easily. And, uh, and uh, ultimately, we can communicate this with the big decision makers, which is the policymakers and also industry, right? So I think for me, it's just trying to uh, facilitate that communication, really what I'm trying to do with, with my research right? and, yeah. and implicitly and- trying to address climate change and other environmental problems we have.
0: Yeah. And it seems like you are at a wonderful point in your life where... Work is a bit of play. Of course, you still have to do things that aren't fun, like administrative work, um, unless you really enjoy <laughs> it. But um, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy for you that that is the point. Um, so we're going to go on to our improvised game. And I was trying to rack my brain of how to do an improvised game that was also incorporating some sort of systems thinking Inputs and outputting uh, together. I think I've come across it. It could be disastrous, but I think it's going to be good. But before I tell you exactly what we're going to be doing, um, I need three suggestions from you. The first being a verb ending in ing. Um, Coding. Coding. All right, then uh, snack food you enjoy.
2: Oh, my God, my wife is going to kill me. So let's see. Snack food that I enjoy. Let's uh, call it um, Doritos.
0: Doritos. Okay. All right. And one of your favorite animals? Donkey. I don't know why, but it is. (laughs) They are amazing creatures. They can do a lot um, on very little. Underappreciated. Okay. So here's, here's my thought for this game. We are at a systems engineering conference, and we're both sitting on a panel answering questions from the audience. The questions from the audience are based on your suggestions, so it's going to be a made up audience for us. We're going to answer the questions and then influence the next person's statement. So we'll alternate, but how I end my statement will influence how you answer the question or respond. And one will be code for yes, and two will be code for no. For example, how do you make oatmeal in the morning? Everything goes back to oatmeal for me. I could say, I like to pour half of a cup of oatmeal into a bowl and mix it with peanut butter. Two. And then your response, you have to say no and then go into something. So there could be, no, that's not the right way to make oatmeal. You should be doing. For the first question, I can start and so I'll answer the question and then give you a number at the end of the phrase. We'll just wrap up a question when, I, when we both feel like we've said enough. Our first question, based on your suggestion, this is from the audience, two of the panel. I can go first. What's one thing I can do to reduce animals from coding methane? Recently, deer have been using computers to code for methane, and it's been a huge issue because since then they have spontaneously made more methane and increased the global amount by 10%. And I'll say one, so you respond yes.
2: Yes, and I have also, and I also know that uh, donkeys are very good at uh, coating methane and generating a good amount of it, that it goes leak into the atmosphere too.
0: No, I've, I've heard that donkeys are pretty good coders, but I don't know if they're the best coders. I've been more concerned about mules, which take the uh, vigorousness of donkeys and the stamina of horses because they can stay up all night. And they've really, although it's been minimal methane input right now, they're on a course with exponential growth to increase methane by 2025 by 40% too. Cool.
2: No, but think about ice cream and how you can produce over four gallons of manure per gallon of ice cream from dairy cows, right? So just think about the huge amount of methane that comes out of that manure.
0: One. Yes, that's what we should be thinking about. The amount of manure uh, that is equivalent to ice cream, and we're, we're in a massive dairy state, so we really need to make sure that we're Accounting for methane from real manure and not animals coding, Um, I'm pretty sure we can just design a button to make sure animals can't log in or start a computer. All right. Our second question from the audience is, how will increased consumption of Doritos affect nutrient runoff in the future?
2: Well, you need to think about how Doritos are made out of uh, corn and to grow corn you're going to need manure because manure is used as fertilizer. And that fertilizer uh, will, is the one that contains phosphorus that goes into the lakes and eventually drives eutrophication of the lakes and algae blooms. So that's a big problem uh, that we have. One.
0: Yes. And it's, it's something that we often don't think about when we're snacking, that a lot of snacks beyond just Doritos are also mostly made of corn. And so, if we can successfully mitigate the application of manure, maybe from the runoff to our snacks uh, by eating these snacks, will actually help save the world, too.
2: Yes, but it's not only that. So you also have to think about other products that are even more important, like cheese. Right. So we have cheese. We have many different types of cheese in Wisconsin. Ninety percent of our milk turns out. Is used for producing uh, cheese. So we also need to, in addition to reducing snacks, we also need to cut down our cheese consumption, maybe. One.
0: Yes. And I have this, I have an issue um, when we're really talking about nutrient runoff and we're talking about cheese. Me personally, and I have to eat more snacks like Doritos that may contain cheese on there. um, I'm going to have some of my own personal runoff problems um, that... Could affect a lot more other people, too, in the future.
2: Uh, one. Uh, yes, and there's uh, definitely a lot of opportunities for us to contribute to reduce this. Um, so when we're snacking sometimes, right, like we also like to mix some of these snacks with milk. Uh, we like to mix it with other interesting dairy products like yogurt. So maybe you're not a big fan of Doritos with yogurt, but that's another one that maybe we can tackle. Uh, Two.
0: Yes, but I I do feel like most people aren't eating um, Doritos with yogurt. It seems like more people are eating Doritos uh, with kefir, um, which is a bit more of a uh, lactic acid heavy fermented dairy product. Um, And I I think I have a new invention coming down the line that will help all the runoff where I'm going to actually just uh, take... The Doritos add them to the kefir and let them ferment together, um, which will minimize uh, packaging and fuel costs. um, And I think runs from farms to processing plants as well. Okay. And then we can go on to our third and final question. Could donkeys running on treadmills be a source of renewable energy? So I, when I think of donkeys, I think of many different things, um, you know they're really friendly. The times that I've worked with donkeys i I knew one named Pedro who loved mints, and I love to feed him mints, but he is an animal and not a plant, so he needs a bit more energy going into things, um even with mints so i'm I'm not completely optimistic that donkeys will be able to power the world on treadmills one
2: um uh, yes um. Donkeys are probably not gonna power the world uh, they, just by using the treadmills. They produce manure the same way that, that cows produce manure, and uh, and that manure can actually be turned into methane that we can use into power some homes. So in places like Africa they do it. So uh, too.
0: Yes, but as I learned in one of your presentations uh i believe yesterday victor um the returns on products in the united states from extra excess nutrient you know there's an issue that they're not getting as much value from this recycling of product um and even with um aerobic or anaerobic digesters of methane for energy fuel so i i think if we were going to go down the road of using donkeys for a power source it would strictly be the donkeys on the treadmills Uh, for their power of powering the treadmill and not manure, two.
2: I don't know. Maybe we can use donkeys in a different way to uh, power the world. I also heard that they are really loud, so maybe we can extract energy from acoustic waves. So, uh, yeah, in Mexico, I remember seeing a lot of those donkeys. They're pretty loud, and they can actually probably power quite a bit of devices that way. One.
0: Yes, I think if we get enough donkeys on treadmills... While they are next to uh, maybe wind sails and they are neighing into the wind sails, that can also power some, you know, well, it's concept. We'll have to still develop this a little bit more, but maybe some power generation on that as well. (laughs) So hopefully that answers all the audience questions. (laughs) (laughs) So, Victor, hopefully that was like some sort of system engineering incorporated into an improv game.
2: Yeah, it's part of uh, connecting the dots. Uh, sometimes those dots are not obvious. <laughs> so
0: that's good. Yeah. And especially when we do not know how to respond um, until the very last second. So hopefully that was a good uh, brain teaser. And if you want to use that game uh, going forward in your lab or any other interactions yeah. you do, you are more than welcome I'll to. I'll do it with I... my
2: kids. I'll do it with my kids for sure. <laughs>
0: Perfect. I think they'll be happy to be like, no, I can disagree with my dad. <laughs> and it's it's yeah. on purpose this time. Well, Victor, it's been so much fun to have you on the podcast. Uh, likewise with Olivia. I've learned a lot. I actually, I, I've given myself homework to go and finish all the lectures that you've given that are on YouTube. Because I've found them very fascinating. Um, so, yeah, thanks for being on here. And thanks for working with Field Day Lab to create Lakeland. Uh, Because I will also probably play that again in the future, too. Excellent. Yeah, thank you, Ben, for everything you do. Very exciting to be here. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. Now you are smarter about coding systems and know some manure facts. I hope you look at your ice cream a bit differently and think about how you might be able to take care of the water. And if you'd like to support the podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Every bit helps. A link to review is in the show notes. Until next time, be well. Even Data was produced and edited by me, Ben Rush, partly by Jevon Lordy. Website Development and Editing by Julian Epper. dreary dreary little December in Wisconsin. It's so cold I don't want to leave the house, but I will because Outside is still good for me, and my room smells a little too much like beans and lentils. Like I
1: mentioned, like I played too much these games as an adult. Um, (laughs) that's a good sign.